To mark the unveiling of our New Look website, we're offering podcast listeners the chance to claim a three-month digital subscription to The Spectator absolutely free, including the magazine delivered via the app, full online access and Spectator newsletters and podcasts. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash free. Hello and welcome to Women of Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today is a leading politician who, alongside Diane Abbott, holds the title of most senior woman in Labour. She has served a variety of briefs, from Shadow Attorney General to Shadow Foreign Secretary, and recently had a punt at the top job herself. I'm delighted to be joined by Emily Thornbury. She grew up in Guildford, where she had an early encounter with politics when a Labour councillor helped her family get back on their feet after her parents' divorce. She failed her 11+, but went on to study law and was called to the bar. After working as a barrister, she entered Parliament in 2005. Since then, she has quickly earned a reputation as a straight talker, calling out injustice and sexism as she sees it, and coming head-to-head with Boris Johnson during his time as Foreign Secretary. Most recently, she put herself forward for the current Labour leadership vacancy, but dropped out of the second round, announcing, I'm proud that I was the only candidate to secure nominations from all four nations of the UK, and I'm delighted to have made new friends around the country, met so many dedicated campaigners who may be deflated by the election result, but are determined to fight back. So with that, thank you very much for joining me today, Emily. There's lots of things going on in the world, most of which relate to the coronavirus. Mm. Um, You're actually in the office, so we're both not yet in self-isolation, but we do have a a good distance (laughs) away from us. Although I think the news is dominated by one thing. On this podcast, we're going to stick with tradition and begin by rewinding the hands of time to your early life you were born in Guildford your mother was a teacher your father was a lecturer at LSE at one point one of the questions I have often asked people on this podcast is was there's a happy childhood but you've been quite open about the difficulties you faced growing up your parents divorced when you were quite young that's right yeah they divorced when I was seven I don't really have any memories of them being together which is a shame yeah, I remember my dad making, uh, my dad was from Northern Ireland and uh, and one of his specialties was, was white mother's pride bread with butter and uh, granulated sugar on top. And I, he, I remember him making me that. I remember him watching the rugby and um, and eating mince with all kinds of bits in it. But I don't really have any other memories of my parents being together. And even then, I don't remember my father and my mother being together. Just I remember my father being in the house. And then they split up and dad just disappeared. And and my poor mother was just left completely... She just didn't have anything. She didn't have any money. She didn't couldn't pay the mortgage. She couldn't pay the bills. She didn't know how to claim benefits. She didn't know where to turn, really. I remember my, my nan and my granddad being quite helpful, but, you know, they couldn't carry it all. So, um, so yeah, so it was a Labour councillor who, who um, my mum was in the Labour Party, who came along and basically saved us. I, I mean, I do have memories of the bailiffs. And in the 60s, they used to wear bowler hats. And I remember the bailiffs used to come and mum would shout, get on the floor! And we all had to leap on the floor and hide. Um, so they didn't know that we were there. But eventually they caught us and we got chucked out. And we got moved onto a big council estate outside Guildford. Um, it took mum years because the children were really little before she could go back to work. 
she was able to work as a cleaner. She was able to do work as a barmaid, but she wasn't able to work proper hours, you know, and and work as a teacher, which is what she trained to do until we were all at school. And um, and so it was really difficult. I mean, it was really difficult. And, and there are things kind of come back to mind and I just realised just how poor we were. I was talking to a friend of my mum's recently. Um, her kids used to come and have tea with us so Barbara could work. And um, Auntie Barbara saying to me that um, she... She and Sally, my mum, used to. the kids used to say, well, aren't you having any tea? And the two of them would lie and say, no, 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 we ate earlier, we ate earlier. But they didn't. They used to just miss meals. And it was a really tough childhood in many ways, actually. Um, and then going to the secondary modern was was um, was tough as well. There was uh, I used to have problems with a gang of girls. Um, there was one particular girl whose name I won't mention because... She, you know she's still alive but uh but she but she was supposed to be a friend of mine and we fell out and then she hated me and she her and her gang used to wait for me um going home and I could go around the long way or I could go through the hole in the fence which is the way everyone went um to get back onto the estate and it was in the days of platform shoes and we used to really fight and I used to come back with bits of hair missing and bruises and but you know being kicked with platform shoes was quite quite hard so it was it was a it was a tough childhood but um but I wouldn't be who I am without those kinds of experiences and um I think when I go through difficult times I can always think this is nothing like as difficult as some of the things I've experienced in my life. Yeah. Um you mentioned their platform shoes for also some of the difficulties at school. Yeah. Is it fair to say that it affected your academic studies? In, in terms oh yeah. Of work. Well, um, I mean, I was only I allowed. To, you... I was only allowed to do five O levels, and two of them had to be in technical subjects because I wasn't expected to go to university. Was that because, and because you failed your eleven? Yeah, 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 yeah. So in this secondary modern, basically, you're not supposed to go on to university. You're not really supposed to do A levels. The idea of secondary moderns is that you you educate people to a certain level, and then they go out to work. But it, actually, in the end, I ended up going going to live with my dad for my sixth form, and I had to redo my O levels because I hadn't entirely found past them and so I had to do I had to redo the final them results and, exactly and then did the A-levels and then went on to university after that but there was also a gap between finishing school and going to university when I was doing a, I did a whole load of jobs you know trying to work out what I was going to do with myself so I remember working for Hammersmith Council as a car park attendant. I had a kind of brazier and a big donkey jacket with London Borough of Hammersmith written on it. And I was sitting there reading Our Mutual Friend, I remember. <laughs> I worked on Evita selling ice creams. I, uh, I worked in Marks and Spencers on the tills. I worked in a in a factory, a card factory, where you had to pack the cards into cardboard boxes. And the production line used to go so fast that we couldn't keep up with it. Even one of the older women who had been on the on this production line for years couldn't keep up with it. So it wasn't just me. So what she used to do, if we got if we got it all backed up, was so she used to stick the brim handle into the machinery to order to break the machine for a bit. And then the guys would come along and fix it. And in the meantime we'd be able to catch up. <laughs> So I had a kind of quite a, quite a lot of experience, and then when I went to university, I didn't have I didn't have enough money, you know, and I didn't have anywhere to live. So I had to find somewhere to live during the um, the holidays, and I had to pay the rent, and you know, so I so in order to get through college, I did lots of different jobs. So yeah, and you chose to study law. So yeah, yeah. what was it that drew you to that? Was it that it was a stable profession? Also, for someone who uh, mm. obviously was 
at a school where they weren't really mm. encouraging yeah, academia yeah. to a degree. It's one of those competitive degrees, isn't it? Well, I do remember that my careers teacher at my secondary modern, when I asked him what I should do with my life, he said I could always visit people in prison. And I, I think he probably was being in prison. Yeah, I think he probably wasn't thinking of of it as being a lawyer. But uh, but I did used to you know visit lots of people in prison. And as I say, it probably wasn't what the career master was thinking. But I thought it was a way of keeping my options open. Was doing law because it was like doing an arts degree or a social science degree, but also it might be a pathway to doing something else. And my dad had done a law degree, so he was really keen on the idea of my doing it. He said it was a good training for the mind, and indeed it is. You know, I can assimilate a large amount of information. I can pick up arguments. I can get on top of. I can get on top of a brief. You, know, you can chuck something at me, and I can get. On, I mean, I'm. You know, that's 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 my training. I can get to the core of it because of the legal training and I can articulate it. Actually, some of the best politicians in the world have been lawyers. And I think that the two trainings are kind of quite, quite close. No, so that's why. And then, you know, I, I did it and I stood I stood for president of my students union and I didn't get it. I didn't really know what to do. And my friend Carol. Oh, God, yes, it was really close. It was really close. I was beaten by the SDP. Can't believe it. Anyway, so I didn't know what to do. My friend Carol was going to bar school and she pointed out that you could get a grant and this, that and the other. So I thought, oh, well, I'll go. So I thought I did. So I went with Carol and I applied to bar school and I, and I did my training as a barrister. And then I didn't really, I really didn't like it. I didn't like it socially. I hadn't really seen the kind of upper middle classes en masse before. And, and I felt out of place. And so I finished my bar training and then I took another year off. And... Um, I found a job with a firm of solicitors. And then when I saw the law in action, as opposed to just people throwing peas at each other and graze in when eating their dinners, I realised that this was absolutely fantastic. This is what I wanted to do. You know, I had literally fallen on my feet. And so I came back and I and I qualified. You know, I went off and, and did my pupillage and then went off to work in Mike Mansfield's chambers and was at the bar for 20 years and it was great. And at that point, were you political? Because was uh, what I wondered was, was politics a part of growing up? Because am yeah. I right in saying your mother was a Labour candidate, yeah. actually? Yeah, politics was always there. Politics was always there. But it was always kind of grassroots politics, you know. So I would make... I mean, I, it's, I, I'm embarrassed to say, you know, I made a speech when I was 14 about cuts to education at a council meeting. I, you know, I've always been somebody who's hacked about, you know, so you know, I collected subs going door to door when I was 17, when I joined the Labour Party, I did leafleting, you know, collecting numbers. I've always been an activist. I was always an activist. And it was always part of it. So I would move to a new area, I would, I would find out what the lab, local Labour Party was like. I mean, it was like, it was like oxygen. It was like bread. I mean, it was just like what you did. You know, I had been brought up as an activist. I was always going to be an activist. And at what point did you decide that you wanted to make politics your career? Well, as I say, I always did politics. And then I did law. I did law and politics. And then Offended I did human rights. Yeah. And then I did law, politics and kids. And it was too much. So I couldn't give up the kids. So, <laughs> you know, so I gave up the politics for a bit and just did law. And I was miserable. I mean, the sort of law I did quite often was quite political. So I represented minors during the minor strike. I set up a legal advice centre for seafarers during the seafarer strike. I represented people who were protesting outside the South African embassy. I did lots and lots of cases. 
ideas of gay men who were who were being arrested for gross indecency in, in cottages around London. Those from my generation will know what all that means. You know, so I did lots of political work, but it wasn't really enough. I wanted to do politics too. So I then gave up the law for a bit and did some politics. And being at the bar, you can kind of, you know, go backwards and forwards. So there was going to be an all-woman shortlist in Tower Hamlets where I was living. And I thought, I'll have a go. So I gave up law for a bit and tried to get selected, and I didn't. And I thought, actually, I think I want to do this. This was in 96. And then I had another go in 2001 to get selected and got selected in Canterbury. And actually, at that point, when I stood for Parliament in Canterbury in 2001, I thought, yes, yes, this is it. And you then... You came very close, 2000 votes. Yeah, we nearly roughly. got elected, nearly got elected. Did you think you were going to be elected? Well, I, I, had can, a... <laughs> I can tell you, on the night of the count, right, Julian Brazier and I were looking at each other and it was difficult to tell who looked more shocked, you know. <laughs> and I had to ring my clerk because I was in court the following Monday And I had to ring my clerk up and said, you know this seat that's supposed to be an unwinnable? At the moment, in the count, I'm ahead. And I won't repeat what my clerk said because he was really angry because Vera Baird was in the same chambers and she just got elected and he was losing all these senior women and he didn't want to lose me. So, you know, yes, anyway, few choice phrases. But I was in court the following Monday. (laughs) Came back down to earth. But then, as you say, so that was uh, the in 2001 Mm. but then in 2005 you get selected as a candidate for Islington South and Finsbury it's an all-women shortlist and you go on to be elected in that election well so the point was was that um was that Chris Smith stood down I was living in Islington and I think I was the only local person who stood for the selection but there were 42 women who went for the seat but I was the local one and um and I was the one who got nominated by all the wards and everything else so but it was a really hard election because we were number one target seat for the Liberal Democrats. We hadn't got any Labour councillors. And uh, they thought they'd won it. I mean, on the ticker tape, you know, on the on the television, on the night that I was elected, it actually said the BBC had announced that the Liberal Democrats had taken Islington. So I arrived not knowing whether I was going to win or not. And in fact, the Liberals had brought a cake to the count saying, congratulations, Bridget, on the cake. They had to hide it. Did she look shocked? <laughs> And look at her, and and uh, and then a few days later, they put the cake. I'm told into the Lib Dem office and the council. They're having their first Lib Dem meeting. They bring the cake out, and they're saying, and the leader of the council who says, "We're not wasting this. We're going to share this cake." So they cut it open. It's gone rotten. We laughed. <laughs> we laughed. <laughs> Um, what was it like entering Parliament at that point? Because it was um, third term for Labour, yeah, Tony Blair. But clearly, it wasn't. It didn't feel like it was the the peak of that. So, in in terms of the, the mood within the Labour Party, the direction it was going, I was wondering what you, what your experience was at that time. We well, see. I don't have any perspective like that. I mean, for me, I had this overwhelming experience of suddenly being elected to be a member of Parliament. I'd only been in Parliament two or three times before, I'll be honest with you. So I couldn't find my way around. I used to get so lost. I mean, I began to establish that if I was lost and the carpets were red, I was lost in the Lords. And if I was lost and the carpets were green, I was lost in the Commons. And then someone said to me, if you're in a long corridor, it's running parallel to the river. And if you're in a short one, it's not. And that really helped. But it took a long time just to find my way around. But I got myself a couple of friends. We had this, I had this agreement that we were going to be the three musketeers and 
that was me and Dawn Butler and Sadiq. And so the three of us used to be as tight as anything. We were the three new London MPs. And we had this agreement that we would always be straight with each other. We would always trust each other and we would always give each other support. And that's what we've always done. So that lasts to this day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was really important. You know, it was really important to get really good friends that you could rely on because, you know, times were hard. And and the hardest thing for me was that I was so proud to have been elected a Labour MP. I cannot tell you, I love my party. I was born in my party. I will die in my party. And to be a Labour MP was just overwhelming. I was bursting with pride. But then a couple of months after I'd been elected, we had the terrible 7-7 bombings. And and my prime minister reacted completely inappropriately to 7-7 by saying that he was going to introduce 90 days detention without charge. And I couldn't possibly agree to that. I couldn't agree to people being swept up on the say-so of a police officer when there was no evidence and being kept in prison for three months. I just couldn't agree to it. And so I had to rebel, and I wasn't expecting to rebel. I was expecting to be, you know, just a great supporter of the Labour Party. So, yeah, so I was involved in this rebellion um, with Sadiq, and and it was terrible. And we ended up, you know, we won. um, But we were on, I mean, I was on the naughty step for about two years. You know, people just wouldn't speak to you. You They just wouldn't speak to you. They didn't want to be seen anywhere near you, and... And I remember, you know, my poor staff saying, well, Emily, this is all very well, but you do know that we will never move out of this cupboard because they, (laughs) depending on how loyal you are, depends on how big your room is, you know, you will always be in this cupboard. And I just about got off the naughty step when Gordon Brown took over and Gordon Brown was going to introduce 42 days without charge. So I had to rebel again. And again, my staff are going... Really? <laughs> of course we, we support you. <laughs> We're never going to see sunlight. <laughs> and you did eventually get something, though. In 2009, <laughs> you made a ministerial aid yeah. in the Department of Energy and Climate Change. Yeah. So what t- took you about four years? But that was um, really good. It was great because cause it was a really important time because the de- Department of Energy and Climate Change was doing some really important work in terms of where the country was going and what our strategy was going to be. And I had the great honour of going to Copenhagen when Ed Miliband was Secretary of State and where really we took an international leadership role. We were basically leading the Europeans who were pushing the agenda on what we should do on climate change. And people would come up to me and say, can you tell Ed this and tell Ed that we should be doing this? And I'd say, well, why don't you tell him? Oh, no, 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 you tell him, you tell him. And i say, well, why do I need to tell him? Why can't you just say it? Oh, no, because Ed's in charge. I, I was so impressed to see that in action, you know, national leadership in, in practice. And I thought to myself at that point, if Ed ever goes for leadership, I'm definitely supporting him. So it was at that point that I was kind of just completely won over. Ed Miliband becomes leader. Mm. You support him and mm. you were made Shadow Attorney General. Yeah. That's the, I've got the timeline right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I don't know if it was immediate. I think I might yeah, have had another job first. Yeah, 2011, yes. Yeah. You were a Shadow Minister in the Department for Energy and Climate Change. Right. And then you get moved to, obviously, the Shadow yeah. Cabinet as a Shadow Attorney General. Was that a role where you really, you spoke about earlier about combining law with politics. Yeah. So in a way... Perhaps if you took shadow out, it, it was potentially a dream role for you. It didn't have enough politics. It was too much law, actually. I mean, I gave, I did, a, I worked really hard. I did summaries of all the legislation, 
and uh, in order to pass it on to the leader's office so they knew what legislation was going through. I did uh, I did lots of legal advice, particularly on military intervention, but lots of other things. But it was all kind of confidential and shared, you know, with the leader. And otherwise, you know, I mean, it's just not enough politics. I mean, I, I, my legal training helps me with being a better politician. I don't want to be a lawyer first. I want to be a politician with a legal training. That's too much there. Yeah. Um, you stepped down from the role of Shadow Attorney General in 2014. Mm. It's, I think, now infamously known as White Van Gate. For listeners who aren't aware of that incident, it was when you... I think there's not going to be a listener that isn't aware of it. (laughs) I mean, I I think that it's, you know, six years on, and uh, but it's still raised. It's interesting, you know, because, I mean, the Prime Minister has talked about blue-collar workers as being drunkards and lazy and usually unemployed with low self-esteem. But I'm the one who sneers. Well, I wanted to ask you about that because ultimately it was a tweet of an image from Rochester which had St. George flags in it. And as you say, lots of people at the time suggested this was, you know, a sign of snobbery, the metropolitan elite, Islington metropolitan elite even. And the other thing I think that wasn't at the same time, and I'm going to actually say it wrong so you can tell Mm. me how I say it, but um, when people say Lady Nuji, and it's a title from your husband mm. and it all kind of builds to this idea that I think people like mm. to sometimes depict of you which is I presume it does rattle you but I wondered if it particularly rattles you because we've spoken about your upbringing on this mm. podcast and it feels so far removed mm. from you know this metropolitan elite mm. idea mm. um does it frustrate you it is frustrating because you know because I was brought up on benefits by a single parent on a council estate and and people have to work quite hard at painting me as being something that I'm not. But they do an half work hard at it. But I think it's a little bit like Islington. You know, people like to think of Islington as being kind of Georgian squares and cappuccino bars and that sort of thing, which we are. But we've also got the sixth worst child poverty statistics in the whole of the country because my estates are really poor. And and half of my people live on in council estates so just like Islington I think the MP for Islington can be misrepresented I mean listen you know I'm a I'm a successful woman I'm a member of parliament you know I am the right honourable Emily Thornbury and I'm the MP for Islington South and Finsbury I am very proud of that and you know and I've done well with my life but you know (laughs) I also came up the hard way I mean I didn't take it, it it wasn't an easy route But I think that actually that's what makes me quite a good politician is that I have a breadth of experience. But, you know, I don't I don't caricature well. My husband is a high court judge and I met him when I was a student. And apart from his big blue eyes, he was the cleverest boy in the room. And um, and I'm immensely proud of him. But uh, I have to say that his success is entirely his success. I mean, there are many, you know, couples who who rely on one another. And, you know, when a man gets an honour, then the woman shares it. Because, frankly, he probably wouldn't have got there without her. But I haven't even ironed a shirt for him. You know, he has done it entirely himself. Um, when you have something like that happen, I just wondered, um, in terms of politics, how do you pick yourself back up? Because it probably at the time they have the press focus on it you know, uh, and oh they've lost that role uh, it can feel I suppose like your whole political career in terms of frontline politics could, uh, could be gone and I just wanted mentally kind of 
from well, that. Well, I think there were a couple say. of things that were really important. I think the first thing was actually, I don't want to be, I mean, this is true, It's but it sounds so caricature, so I'm sorry, you know, but my constituents were lovely. I mean, they were lovely about it. And if you think about it, you know, my majority, again, went up enormously in that election. And it was like the people of Islington got up as one and came out and said, our MP is not what people paint her to be. But I think also, you know, I have a I have a strong and close family and and friends. And that's all that matters, isn't it? And you mentioned your increased majority in the 2015 general election. Just looking at that result generally, mm. in the build-up to it, mm. there were a growing view that the Tories were not going to be able to get a majority, that Ed Miliband would form a government. Yeah. It might not be a Labour majority government, but there are various polls to saying it's actually impossible for the Tories. Yeah. So what was it like for you when the results came through as someone who had personally backed Ed? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was really devastating. It was really devastating. Yeah, I mean, I've the Labour Party without power is nothing. We have to be in power. And uh, and to lose another election is really hard. Particularly when you fundamentally disagree with the way the government is going. And we did, you know, and I do. Jeremy Corbyn then becomes leader. We're doing a very fast version of history here. Yeah, yeah. Undramatic leadership contest. You serve in his in his team, first as Minister for Employment, but you quite quickly promoted, quite fast-track promotion, and partly because not just your own talents, but people seem to be dropping like flies in Jeremy Corbyn's government. Lots of people refusing to, to serve in it. So you went to Shadow Defence Secretary and then you were promoted to Shadow Foreign Secretary after Hillary Benn left. And at one point you were Shadow Foreign Secretary and Shadow Brexit Secretary. There was one and, point when I was Shadow Defence and Foreign as well, actually. Oh, okay, sorry. Yeah, yeah, so, so you got used to have it, having several briefs. And there were times around this, obviously not going to the specific timelines, when colleagues were trying to stop Jeremy Corbyn, you know, so I did that everyone should mass resign. How much flack did you get for sticking with Jeremy Corbyn and, and staying in the Shadow Cabinet? Yeah, I mean, most of my friends resigned. So it was really difficult. And I had lots of conversations, stroke arguments with people, but I didn't agree with them. My view was was that Jeremy had been elected by the membership and the membership owns the party and it was my duty to make him the best leader he could be. And even if, I used to say to them, even if your criticisms of Jeremy are right, what do you want to achieve? And they would say, well, obviously we've got to get him to, we've got to get a new leader. And I go, but... But the membership wants Jeremy to be the leader. So how are you going to change that by resigning? And then they would get into, oh, but he's so terrible, I've got to resign, I can't possibly serve. And I'd just go, but the Labour Party needs you. And and so you should serve. It's, it's a very simple way of understanding me and my politics, is that I am completely loyal to the Labour Party. And I always will be. Um, now moving to the, the final sections of the podcast and the closer to the present day, we had the 2019 election feels quite far away doesn't it <laughs> now, right doesn't now it? as do the endless brexit debates the past few years have been dominated by brexit clearly there were strong opinions on both sides particularly mm. within labor mm. how was the 2019 election campaign for you was it frust- um, frustrating well it was frustrating because i didn't think that we should have an election my view was was that we should have stuck with our policy which was that we should have another 
referendum and that referendum should be a confirmatory referendum on whatever deal there was. So to have one referendum on the principle of leaving the European Union, but then given how many years it had taken for us to get a deal, once a deal was agreed, then we should put that back to the people and say, is this really what you wanted? If it is, then fine. But we think it might not be because it is kind of very different to the campaign, all the promises that were made. But listen, it's up to you, but let's have a referendum. And we should have had a referendum. We should have got Brexit done that way. And then we should have had a general election. And that's what I argued for in Shadow Cabinet. And I believe I was right. You threw your hat into the ring to be the next Labour leader. Mm. And it felt as though it was quite uphill from the get-go. Partly because you very early on had Caroline Flint going on television and claiming that you had called Northern voters stupid. You have, you've denied that. Um, well, I'm te- taking legal action, is yeah. the truth. Um, <laughs> Which is an her. ongoing thing. <laughs> um, so, so be careful what we say around that. But there was this, yeah, uh, legal action is ongoing. Were you surprised by how difficult it was in the early stages of things like that? Well, you know, it's, it's difficult, isn't it? It's difficult to know. I think sort of timing and luck are, are much underestimated in politics. But... Uh, I think that it kind of quickly became a like a fight between you whether you were in favor of uh, of remaining in the European Union or which part of the country you represented it kind of quickly became a sort of a left right fight as well so I mean I tried to put myself forward as a candidate that could unify the party but in some ways it was as if the party kind of wanted to have a fight and I, you know, I would, I would speak to some people who would say, yeah, yeah, no, we really like you, Emily, and we'd really like to nominate you, but we've got to stop the left, so we're going to support Keir. And then I'd have other people who'd say, oh, Emily, we really, really like you, but, you know, we've got to make sure that, uh, you know, and it was just like, I got caught, I got squeezed. So, you know, there we are. <laughs> <laughs> what say can I say? <laughs> um, <laughs> Not to dwell too much on it, but I was just going to say, in the first round when you had to get MP support, you, yeah. you kind of touched on it there. Yeah. You did get over the line. It took longer than some of your colleagues and perhaps for the reasons you just yeah. laid out. Yeah. But I did read many think pieces at the time, which is, you know, Emily Thornbury is not popular among her colleagues uh. and things like that. So I wonder, was it upsetting at all, the fact that you you didn't have that support initially or, or did you just take it on the chin? I mean, it's no, I think it's tough. Of course, it's tough. These are people who you work with. But I think in the end, you know, MPs were making decisions having and I the one thing I did realise was that they were really thinking it through. I mean, I didn't agree with the conclusions they were making, but it wasn't a kind of knee jerk, you know, they were thinking through who would be the best leader for the party and how we absolutely must not lose another election. And they largely came to the conclusion that Keir was the right person to do that. So, you know, there we are. And obviously the contest will end eventually. <laughs> Probably before the coronavirus ends. I'm right to say you haven't yet endorsed anyone. No. And you're not planning on? No, no. Is that because you think it's for the membership? Yeah, it's for the membership. And whoever gets elected, I will serve, you know, in whatever capacity they want me to. Now, everyone thinks Keir Starmer is going to win, so... Mm. We could be in for another big political shock if that doesn't come to pass. Some of the things you were saying at the beginning of the podcast about how your legal career combined with politics meant that you have that focus. Mm. Um, you mentioned some of the cases you worked on. I think mm. they are similar causes to some of the things mm. Kiz worked on. Mm. And we get to have a female leader. <laughs> Do you think that gender has come into this in this competition or, or are we all just a bit obsessed with saying, oh, Labour's not ready for a female leader? 
Oh, I don't know. I mean, we've got more women than men in Parliament, which is pretty cool. Um, we've got more and more women in the party. We've got more and more women councillors and activists. And as I go up and down the country, the people who seem to be running the local pa- parties are largely women, in my view. So I think there has been a feminization of the Labour Party, which is... I've just seen happening over the last 20 years, which has been amazing. And uh, I think that we're a long way ahead of the Tories. Clearly, coronavirus is dominating the news at the moment. And there's lots of very serious questions to ask about that. But there's also just a few things I thought we could explore, perhaps slightly on the lighter side, which is ultimately there is a good chance, for example, if you look at the fact that Michel Barnier announced that he has the coronavirus, that some of our leading politicians have to take a few weeks out. Now, In that case, there is that show designated survivors. So who, uh, I think all main parties need to think about this, would be the person who steps in for Labour if Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell have to step out? Well, first of all, I think it's a really cheeky question. I think that that both of them are really healthy. There are many 40-year-olds who are much less healthy than Jeremy. There are many 50-year-olds who are much less healthy than Jeremy. So, and some of them are in the great offices of state. But, <laughs> I don't know many people who cycle and run as much as he does or who runs around and people find it very difficult to keep up with Jeremy, I must say, always. And uh, John Mack is the same. So, okay, But you would stand if you were needed or <laughs> I'm the, I'm the Shadow First Secretary, so I suppose that would mean that I would um, be be the person who would uh, who might take over in many circumstances. But it's not going to happen because, uh, as I say, because they're healthier than the people that they shadow in many ways. Yeah, I'm not mean to be cheeky. I'm simply going on the age figures <laughs> from the medical things. The final few things were just over the next couple of weeks, we clearly expecting Parliament to keep going for a week, then a, perhaps a prolonged recess. What do you think Parliament's role should be in a time of crisis like this? There was some talk of perhaps a skeleton commons. Do you think it's important that people can see people in the chamber or do you think there's actually a safety risk to that? I think there is a bit of a safety risk, but I think we have to get the balance between the safety of members of parliament and indeed you know they go back into their constituencies and you know we don't you know we can do without the this virus being spread any more than it needs to be but also the government doesn't have all the answers here i mean this is not an insult to the government but they are making it up as they go along and there isn't a you know there aren't any precedents so it's better decisions are always better made if they're made collectively And I think it's important, therefore, for the opposition to have an active role in this and to be listened to, because I think that many of the things that we're saying are quite sensible. And as I say, the government doesn't have all the answers. So we do, at this time of national crisis, need to be working together and they should listen to criticism. I'm very critical of what's happened with the Foreign Office, for example. In Peru, I think there are 60-plus British citizens who are completely stuck. You know, the flights have stopped. They're not allowed to move around. They want to come home. And the embassy is closed. So I raised it in Parliament and made it a lot of fuss. And people came, oh, why are you criticising in this time of crisis when we should all be pulling together? Well, no, <laughs> actually, we do need to raise these issues. And it seems that a, pl- a plane is now being chartered. I'm very glad to hear that the tickets are still far too expensive but you know we can you know push people chivvy people along in the right direction 
as I say, nobody has a God-given right to make all decisions in difficult times like this, and they should listen to other people, and we are an important part of the democratic process. So it's important to have some method, whether it's in the chamber or outside, mm. to, make, to make sure that mm. they're being scrutinised. Yeah, yeah. And now I am inundated with individuals who are stuck around the world wanting help getting home, which is fair enough, you know, and, and we basically triage it. So, you know, the most difficult cases get sent to the Foreign Secretary, the, the, the you know, and we, so we just... <laughs> Final two things. First off, I mean, I think politicians probably have to deal with a higher level of stress in some professions, clearly mm. some in, on the front line are, are very stressful also. How do you cope with stress? Gin. <laughs> I smoke. And I cycle. And actually, I think cycling helps quite a lot too. But so does the silk cut and the gin. Well, you, can take a, <laughs> you, can, you can take at least two of those into your self-isolation unit. So maybe a, a standstill bike. I also take that to be your tips for self-isolation. <laughs> the final thing we ask on this podcast is something we ask every guest, which is simply, what is the worst advice you've ever been given? And perhaps ignored, perhaps you took it. Yeah, I think probably the worst advice that I was given, which I paid attention to, because I think the advice that you ignore, you then forget. So I do remember being told that, you know, having my hair cut to half an inch on my head and dyed red would be a good look. (laughs) Even though it was in the 80s, it wasn't a good look. (laughs) Thank you, Emily. Thanks for listening. And if you'd like to send us your feedback on this podcast or any of our many podcasts, please do get in touch. Just email us at podcast at spectator.co.uk. Hold up. 